Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Randy Rhodes, BBC, Countdown with Keith Olbermann, Democracy Now!, Mike Malloy, The Young Turks, and The New York Times. oblivious to this war. And Bob Herbert at the uh, New York Times uh, wrote an uh, editorial piece, an op-ed piece today, that is so breathtaking that uh, you need to hear it. So we're reading it to you because it's just the truth. Nothing but the truth. So help us all, dear God. Um, It's called While Iraq Burns. Americans are shopping while Iraq burns. The competing television news images on the morning after Thanksgiving were of the unspeakable carnage in Sadr City, where more than 200 Iraqi civilians were killed by a series of coordinated car bombs and the long lines of cars filled with holiday shopping zealots that jammed the highway approaches to American malls that had opened for business at midnight. A Walmart in Union, New Jersey, was besieged by customers even before it opened its doors at 5 a.m. on Friday. All I can tell you, said a Walmart employee, is that they were fired up and ready to spend money. There's something terribly wrong with this juxtaposition of gleeful Americans with fistful of dollars storming the department store barricades and the slaughter by the thousands of innocent Iraqi civilians, including old people, children, and babies. The war was started by the United States, but most Americans feel absolutely no sense of personal responsibility for it. Representative Charles Rangel recently proposed that the draft be reinstated, suggesting that politicians would be more reluctant to take the country to war if they understood that their constituents might be called up to fight. What struck me was not the uniform opposition to the congressman's proposal. It's long been clear that there is zero sentiment in favor of the draft in the United States, but the fact that it never provoked even the briefest discussion of the responsibilities and obligations of ordinary Americans in a time of war. Well, it did here. With no obvious personal stake in the war in Iraq, most Americans are indifferent to its consequences. In an interview last week, Alice Richados, a 19-year-old history major at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, said, you know, I definitely don't know anybody who'd want to fight in Iraq, but beyond that, I get the feeling that most people at school don't even think about this war. They're more concerned with what grade they got on yesterday's test. His thoughts were echoed by other students, including John Caffalari, a 19-year-old sophomore at the University of New Hampshire, who was asked if he had any friends who would be willing to join the Army. No, definitely not, dude. Okay, out of the dude. None of my friends even really care about what is going on in Iraq. This indifference is widespread. It enables most Americans to go about their daily lives completely unconcerned about the atrocities resulting from a war being waged in their name. While shoppers here are scrambling to put the perfect touch to their holidays with the purchase of a giant flat-screen TV or a PlayStation 3, the news out of Baghdad is of a society in the midst of a meltdown. According to the United Nations, more than 7,000 Iraqi civilians were killed in September and October. 5,000 of those killings occurred in Baghdad, a staggering figure. In a demoralizing reprise of life in Afghanistan under Taliban rule, the U.N. reported that in Iraq, 
quote, the situation of women has continued to deteriorate. Increasing numbers of women were recorded to be either victims of religious extremists or honor killings. Some non-Muslim women are forced to wear a headscarf and to be accompanied by spouses or male relatives. Journalists in Iraq are being assassinated with the utmost impunity, said the U.N. report, with 18 journalists murdered in the last two months. Iraq burns. We shop. The Americans dying in Iraq are barely mentioned in the press anymore. They warrant maybe one sentence in a long roundup article out of Baghdad or a passing reference no longer than a few seconds in a television news account of the latest political ditherings. Since the vast majority of Americans do not want anything to do with the military or the war, the burden of fighting has fallen on a small cadre of volunteers who are being sent into the war zone again and again. Nearly 3,000 have been killed, and many thousands more have been maimed. The war has now lasted as long as the American involvement in World War II. But there is no sense of collective sacrifice in this war, no shared burden of responsibility. The soldiers in Iraq are fighting, suffering, and dying in a war in which there are no clear objectives and no end in sight, and which a majority of Americans do not support. They are dying anonymously and pointlessly, while the rest of us are free to buckle ourselves into the family vehicle and head off to the malls and shop. Because, Bob, most Americans probably think Iraq is some kind of new iPod. Iraq, Iran, iPod. It's the latest gadget, ain't it? I can't be wrong about that, can I? If it starts with an I, we want it. Oh, it's a war? We don't even want to know about it. And that is really the truth. You know, Americans just are not aware of this war. I wonder if anyone in Iraq can manage to forget the war for even a second I say no. We're like in the giant green zone is what's happened here. We're like walled off from the rest of the world. We're walled off from Iraq and walled off from reality. No one is paying any attention to this war except the few of us who care about what's being done in our name, which is becoming a very small and smaller and smaller few. turn to Iraq now and three and a half years on from the invasion most residents of Baghdad still live without reliable electricity despite more than four billion dollars poured into power projects by the Americans many areas of the city get no more than three hours of power per day in response an alternative power network has developed across Baghdad from local neighborhood generators but they're not always reliable either as our Baghdad correspondent Andrew North found out this is a sound that's become commonplace in Baghdad three and a half years on from the US and British invasion. 
the relentless grind of a generator. But this one is part of an organised system. With no sign of the national power system improving, a new, unofficial one has developed in the capital instead. It's run by people who are known as generator men. I've come to meet one in a neighbourhood in East Baghdad. Yasser my name is Yasser Hamza. I run generators to give power to people in this area. He has two generators, one for local shops, the other for about 200 nearby homes. A wooden shed serves as the junction box with a switch for each customer inside, labelled with their names. A spaghetti mass of wires emerges from the roof then spreads out down the street. In Saddam's time, we didn't need generators like this because we had electricity most of the day. But now, we only get power for a few hours a day. With these generators, I can give people in this area electricity in the mornings and the evenings. It's not a bad business. He's taking in more than $9,000 a month. I'm going to find one of Yasser's customers. It's not just electricity that's lacking in this area, though. There are piles of uncollected rubbish dumped between parked cars, and there's a black pond of sewage running the length of the street. This is the home of Abu Mustafa, a former army officer who lives here in a few small rooms with his wife and four children. We're in the living room, but we're in semi-darkness. As with national power, electricity from the local generator man isn't guaranteed. Abu Mustafa isn't happy. What can we do? We have given him money for nothing. I have a fridge and freezer, and they haven't worked for four days. But the generator man just makes excuses. So what has happened to the billions the Americans say they've spent on the electricity system since they invaded? Corruption and mismanagement is part of the answer. But another part is that in some areas outside Baghdad, things have got better. Under Saddam Hussein, many outlying districts were starved of electricity, so the capital could have the lights on more or less constantly. Now what power there is, is being distributed more equitably. But security is still a major handicap. Al Herman is a senior American advisor to Iraq's Ministry of Energy. If you can promise me that they won't continue to blow up the transmission lines, I can promise you that we will get as much power into Baghdad as we possibly can. I know how to build electric systems. I don't know how to protect them. Back in his dimly lit home, Abu Mustafa turns the subject back to the security situation too. We've got used to the problems with electricity, but life is much worse now than it was before the war, with all the violence and executions. If the Americans and the Iraqi government could generate more power for Baghdad and improve other basic services, the thinking goes... It would also win them more support and help reduce the violence. But that's the catch-22 the Americans are now in. Only with better security can they make these improvements. And at the moment, the violence is only getting worse. Andrew North in Baghdad. Now floating up and down, I spin colliding into sound Like whales beneath me diving down I'm sinking to the bottom of my everything that freaks me out The lighthouse gleam has just run out I'm cold as cold as cold can be, be. Oh.
have been too often disappointed by the optimism of the American leaders both in Vietnam and Washington to have faith any longer in the silver linings they find in the darkest clouds, the observer began, exactly 38 years and nine months ago tonight. To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe, in the face of the evidence, the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic yet unsatisfactory conclusion. And the observer's conclusion? It is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out will be to negotiate, not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. Our fifth story on the countdown, after years of erring on the side of caution about Vietnam, Walter Cronkite, on February 27, 1968, truly matched his sign-off, and that's the way it is. And America never saw that war the same way. Wishing neither to make an undue analogy nor be too introspective, but on the advice of a panel of experts, NBC News and MSNBC have today decided to call it, in Iraq, the way it is, civil war. On the heels of sectarian violence, on the ground in Iraq, in which more than 200 people lost their lives. The killing today continuing. Police finding more than 75 bodies, victims of shootings and roadside bombings. The morgues already full. Against that backdrop, the president heading overseas this morning for the second time in as many weeks to meet with NATO allies and the Iraqi prime minister. His administration chafing at the decision of this news organization and some others to begin calling the violence in Iraq what it has been for many months now, even years, a civil war arguing that most of the bloodshed is contained in the capital city. From a White House statement today, the violence is primarily centered around Baghdad, and Baghdad security and the increased training of Iraqi security forces is at the top of the agenda when President Bush and Prime Minister Maliki meet later this week in Jordan. In a moment, Jack Jacobs on the mechanics of the terminology. First, let me call in our own Craig Crawford, also, of course, a columnist for Congressional Quarterly. Craig, good evening. Good evening. Without navel-gazing too much here, we, we hope we'd be having this discussion if it had been ABC's call or CBS's. What do you think is the practical political importance of the decision to use these words in the mainstream media, civil war? Well, it goes beyond NBC. Uh, I think uh, the other news organizations who are joining this, uh, we're going to see now news coverage that calls it what it is, and that is going to have an impact because I think the administration responded so intently to this because they know uh, that once uh, American people just really grapple with the fact that our troops are in the middle of a civil war that we can't control, uh, the imperative to get out and get out sooner than later uh, just gets even stronger. Lord knows, nobody who watches this program does not already know that you're the author of an excellent book called Attack the Messenger, How Politicians Turn You Against the Media. Uh, an administration saying it's not a civil war, a major mainstream news organization saying it is, and to describe it thusly henceforth, how do you expect the administration to respond? Does it turn to retribution in some way? Can we expect incoming here? They already re reacted swiftly uh, in a statement attacking uh, the, this, this new use of the word civil war. Uh, let's look at what the administration wants to call it. They want to call it a new phase in sectarian violence. Uh, I don't think many Americans would, would go along with that uh, attribution. And, and then, uh, you know, well, actually, I, if these folks were designing road signs, Keith, uh, they'd probably want to call a dead-end sign uh, outlet free or something. Uh, yeah, th this is where I, I, I focused in in my book so much is on the use of language, how Washington often uses language to conceal the truth rather than reveal it. Uh, I was just reading the federal government's report on hunger, concluding there is no mm -hmm. hunger in America, only food insecurity. Uh, th this sort of thing is all over the place.
this, and I, and I think it's the media's job to cut through it and call things what they are. Yeah, as we've discussed many times, it looks like somebody read the book 1984 in a hurry and jotted down a few notes and did things <laughs> yeah. like that. I mean, Bull Run would have been a, uh, a new phase in North-South relations um, in 1861 or 62. But getting back to this point you raised this earlier, media-wise, can anybody put this genie back in the bottle? If you're at ABC or CBS or CNN or the Wall Street Journal, you have the NBC decision. There was a reference just matter-of-factly in the LA Times reporting from Iraq last Friday, referred to Civil War, an editorial in the New York Times yesterday arguing for the use of the phrase, do you not have to just let enough time pass and then adopt the language too, or you wind up looking like shills for the government? I think so. I mean, at some point, uh, some would argue the mainstream media has been very slow at doing this, uh, but they've bent over backwards for a long time to try to give the administration its due and how they wanted things characterized. And, uh, you know, even on things like the, the coalition, uh, the, you know, calling it a coalition instead of U.S. Uh, forces uh, in, in Iraq. Uh, you know, there's so many, uh, so, so many things that the media has tried to do to, to, to give the administration what they wanted. And uh, I think now it's just changing and it's uh, long overdue. And as important, lastly, is the very fact that the organization here is now calling this a civil war. Are the many hoops that essentially we had to jump through just as important? It wasn't enough for us to say based on our reporting, it's raining outside. We had to bring in meteorologists and weather <laughs> forecasters and everybody else, essentially. It would seem to be almost unprecedented for, for actual reporting to no longer be enough. At some point, uh, you know, the media has to remember we serve the, you know, the reading and viewing public and not the politicians. And uh, so I think that, you know, trying to, with a White House that continues to be in denial uh, about these things. I mean, if this were the AA 12-step program, uh, this White House it hasn't even taken the first step, which is to acknowledge and define your problem. Uh, in that environment, the, the media, yeah, had to go through some of these hoops to justify what they've done uh, because we've got an administration that will not address uh, what's actually going on in the ground and is always trying to blame the media or anyone else uh, who, who characterizes it in ways they don't want it characterized. Craig Crawford of MSNBC, Congressional Quarterly, and considerable research on how governments and media interact. As always, Craig, great thanks. Yeah, it's a never-ending story, I'm afraid. Well, the windows are too thin to keep you been this shift lately uh, since the Americans realized that Iraq is a failure of blaming the Iraqis. The Iraqis need to step up, uh, the Iraqis have to choose democracy, if the Iraqis have to choose freedom. Oh, it's very popular for us to blame the Iraqis for um, the chaos that we've brought upon them. And I, I think this will perhaps be something for the cameras in the U.S. and intent by Bush to show that he's um, going to make Maliki, um, you know, seize the reins of his country or, or something absurd like that. Uh, because Maliki has no power of his own, and um, the Iraqis actually did choose democracy. We just never gave them that democracy that they were demanding. Um, 
Nir Rosen, you've just returned in the last hours from the Middle East. You were last in Lebanon, you're in Syria, you have been in Iraq for several years reporting. Um, yesterday on This Week um, with George Stephanopoulos, King Abdullah of Jordan was there. He said there are three civil wars that could uh, be happening at once. Um, Palestine in Israel, um, in uh, Iraq, um, uh, and in Lebanon. Your assessment of this? Well, there is a civil war in Iraq. Um, there's been for a couple of years now. Um, there is a low-scale civil war in the Palestinian-occupied territories, but Jordan is in part responsible for that because uh, the Americans and the Jordanians have been supporting uh, Fatah thugs, uh, led, for example, by uh, Mahmoud Dahlan, against the popularly elected Hamas government, which they fear. Um, and um, Jordan's, Jordanian special forces have been training um, or I think they call it the, the Butter Brigade, which is uh, um, Palestinians who support Fatah against Hamas, um, their own militia. So I think he has a great deal of responsibility for the chaos in the Palestinian territories, um, occupied Palestine. However, in Lebanon, I think um, concerns are exaggerated. Um, having just spent three months there, I don't perceive uh, the likelihood of civil war in Lebanon uh, to be a problem right now. Uh, much has been made of the assassination of Pierre Jemaya last week. Um, and the American media portrayed it as if Archduke Franz Ferdinand had been killed or John F. Kennedy, but in, in reality this guy was a fairly insignificant politician um, and not a vocal anti-Syrian critic. Um, he does come from uh, a party with uh, fascist links um, that massacred thousands of Palestinians, which nobody seems to mention. Which party? Um, the Phalangists. Um, they were responsible for the Cyber and Shatila massacres in 1982. Um, it's very important that people mention this when they lionize this guy who belongs to uh, basically one of the worst death squads in Lebanon. Um, he uh, was hardly democratic, just like anybody else in Lebanon. Um, but there's no risk of civil war in Lebanon right now. I think what you'll see is a continued state of uh, ins insecurity, instability, the occasional assassination. Um, but there's nobody to really fight the civil war because you need two sides. And you have Hezbollah, certainly. Um, extremely powerful, but there's nobody on the other side to fight them. I think America would like there to be a civil war in Lebanon. I think Israel would like that. I think they would like to weaken Hezbollah in a way that they failed to do during the war. But I don't think that it's very likely at this moment. And the discussion of possible direct negotiations with Iran and Syria and the possibility that that's what the Iraq study group is going to recommend um, I think it's clear they will, and I think it's great that the U.S. talks to Iran and Syria. It's long overdue. However, there is this belief that Iran and Syria have uh, and have had um, this huge role in the violence in Iraq, um, and, and I just don't think that's true. Um, if anything, Iran and Syria have always been concerned about the instability in Iraq. They are the neighbors of Iraq, and if anybody can be threatened by the instability, it's them. In Syria right now, you have about three or 4,000 Iraqi refugees crossing the border every day. That's going to destabilize Syria. You already have nearly a million Iraqi refugees in Syria today. Um, Iran certainly wants a strong Shia Iraq, a close ally and a friend, uh, much more than it wants Saddam Hussein in charge. But uh, Iran isn't sponsoring the violence, neither is Syria. So the belief that foreign countries can uh, make things better, uh, I think, is, is naive. Because the violence in Iraq has its own internal logic. It's a civil war. All the arms are there. The hatred is there. Um, and it's not being fought by two large sides. It's being fought in neighborhoods between different mosques, between different blocks, between different gangs. Um, so power isn't in the green zone. Power isn't in Iran and Syria. It's not in Jordan. It's certainly not in the White House. Um, it's in 
it's very localized. Um, just different neighborhood clashes. And what would happen if the U.S. just withdrew troops? Well, same thing that's happening now. Civil war would continue. Um, at, at some point, Shias will make a move against us, uh, a large move against the Sunnis in Baghdad. You'll find the day when there are no Sunnis left in Baghdad. Saudi Arabia and Jordan, of course, are panicking about this, and, and they're hoping the U.S. will in some way arm or support uh, Sunni militias. Um, it's hard for me to imagine that the Sunni nations in the region will stand by and watch Sunnis pushed out of Baghdad and, and um, Baghdad becoming really a Shia city because uh, there is this Sunni terror of the Shia threat. Um, and so you'll see greater uh, support uh, from Saudi Arabia, from Jordan, uh, perhaps from Yemen, Egypt, for Sunni militias, um, funding things like that. And the civil war will spread and become a regional one. And I think Jordan will cease to exist um, as it does now eventually um, because you'll have the Anbar province of, of Iraq joining somehow. You already have a million Iraqis in Jordan, at least. Um, you, go, you walk in the streets of Jordan, you hear Iraqi Arabic as much as any other kind. Um, um, <clears throat> uh, issue of Iraqi refugees, what you were looking at in this latest trip where you were in Jordan and Syria and in Lebanon. How many Iraqi refugees are there? Nobody knows for sure, but it appears that uh, you have internally displaced people in Iraq, um, maybe 300,000, and that number, of course, is growing every day. Um, and as I said, you have several thousand Iraqis streaming into Syria every day, and you have 800,000 or a million Iraqis in Syria today. You have about a million Iraqis in Jordan today. You have a couple of hundred thousand Iraqis in Egypt. I'm told that there are some in Yemen as well. I think there are 30,000, 40,000 in Lebanon. Um, and in the beginning, uh, the first year or two, it was the wealthy Iraqis coming out who just wanted a better life. Um, but now it's desperate people with nothing, people who've been threatened with death, people who sold their car just to escape. The Jordanians have basically closed the land border. There's a sign on the Jordanian border that says, no men 18 to 35 can enter Jordan from Iraq. Um, and one thing that Iraqis are doing is not taking any of their belongings, because if, you have, if you're in a taxi coming into Jordan from Iraq, with all your suitcases piled on top of the car, the Jordanians will turn you away. So people are coming with nothing and just li living with nothing. And uh, the Americans are putting a great deal of pressure not to have them recognized as refugees, because if you call the Iraqi refugees refugees, you're implying that Iraq is, in, in, uh, is chaotic, it's hopeless. So there's not very much funding going to help these people. Um, and this is going to be, I believe, one of the greatest refugee crises that we've seen in the past few years. Uh, finally, Nir Rosen, you're, uh, in speaking with people, in speaking with many Iraqis and living there, what you think needs to be the solution right now? There's no solution. Um, we've destroyed Iraq and we've destroyed the region, and Americans need to know this. This isn't Rwanda where we can just sit back and, wa and watch the you know, Hutus and Tutsis kill each other and be like, wow. It's terrible. Should we do something? We destroyed Iraq. There was no civil war in Iraq until we got there. And there was no civil war in Iraq until we took certain steps to uh, pit Sunnis against Shias. Um, and now it's just too late. But we need to know that we are responsible for what's happening in Iraq today. Um, and I don't think Americans are aware of this. Um, that we've managed to make Saddam Hussein look good, even to Shias at this point. And what we've managed to do is not only destabilize Iraq, but destabilize Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Iran. This is going to spread for decades. The region won't recover from this, I think, for decades. Um, and Americans are responsible. Do you think troop withdrawal now is, if not an answer, a necessity? Troop withdrawal, um, if I was an American, then I would want to troop withdrawal just because why are Americans dying in Iraq? Every single American who dies in Iraq, he's injured in Iraq, dies for nothing. He didn't die for freedom. He didn't die to defend his country. He died to occupy Iraq. 
Um, and if you withdraw the troops, you'll have less Americans killing Iraqis. Every day the Americans are there, they kill innocent Iraqis, they torture innocent Iraqis, and they occupy Iraq and terrorize Iraqis. They should leave today. I've had several people send me this story. Uh, well, I've, I've had 30. The Malachi Richard story. I think I'm pronouncing his last name right. Chicago resident who uh, a couple of weeks ago set himself on fire. <coughs> Excuse me. Actually, it's about a month ago now, back on November 3rd, along the Kennedy Expressway in, uh, in Chicago. An anti-war protest that that this young man uh, thought could not be ignored. He set up a sign saying, thou shalt not kill. And uh, he, he left a, a lengthy explanation, uh, a suicide note, I guess you want to call it that, although it's more of a political statement. It's, it's, you can find it at Yahoo. And a lot of people writing to me about this are su- suggesting that the media blackout on this story uh, has generated a whole bunch of blog comments and, and criticisms. Do you know how long it's been since, I think, 90, was it 94, 95, since someone, uh, as a form of protest in this country, burned themselves to death? I remember in, in, the, uh, in the 60s, 63, 4, 5, before we had made a huge commitment to uh, troops in, in Vietnam, the Buddhist monk, all I remember is the, the, the first part of his name in, in, in uh, the way we look at the name, T-H-I-C-H. I know I get 30 emails now telling me what his real name, his whole name was, but I remember seeing the pictures on television. Yeah, back, back in the 60s, you could see someone burning to death on television. And there he sat. In front of the uh, Parliament Building in Saigon, is that is that where? After dousing himself in gasoline, setting himself on fire. But Malachi Richer, a, a peace activist from Chicago, and having lived in Chicago for almost four years, uh, I can tell you that the, the peace and justice community in in that in that city is is extensive. Whether it is through uh, Catholic organizations or or non-religious organizations, secular organizations, there there is a, a, a powerful peace and justice movement, and and rightly so. It's Chicago, after all. Powerful peace and justice movement in in Chicago. In his suicide note, Malachi Richer wrote that his fellow Americans had become, quote, more concerned with sports on television and ringtones on cell phones than the future of the world, end quote. 
Now, it's being suggested this guy had mental problems and, and off and on and off and on and, and yada yada, and, and his self-immolation was nothing more than acting out his, his deepest uh, psychosis, uh, which is the standard procedure that you use to discredit someone in, in, the, in this manner. Um, suicide bombers in, uh, in the Middle East who, who uh, ha- have been trivialized by Western media, well, they're just going to go get their 70 virgins without thinking that, that people can make that sort of commitment. But we can't. We don't, we don't do that in this country. Oh, Christ. I mean, the only way we'd make that commitment is if we knew we'd get a PlayStation 3 for half price. Then we might make that commitment, right? Those of us who, you know, who do that sort of thing, not me, not you. I'm not talking about you, truth seeker. But there's a depth of commitment to, to a political idea uh, that, that we, we do not understand in this country. That's why we lost in Vietnam. That's why we're losing in Iraq. That's why we will lose in every single war that George Bush or, or a Democratic president takes us into. That's why the Israelis are losing where it concerns the Palestinian territories. You, when, when you have a population that is as, as committed as, as these several that I've just mentioned to not being dominated by an outside force to the extent that they will commit suicide, you cannot defeat that. You can't do it. It is an utter impossibility. Ask the French. Talk to the French about Algeria. I mean, they're example after example after you cannot do it, especially now. Especially now. With the whole damn planet so utterly polarized politically, religiously, economically. Haves and have-nots, emerging countries, sinking countries, failed states, uh, states riding high on the hog. You cannot defeat that kind of dedication. It cannot be done. I defy you to cite me an example in modern history where it has been defeated. some degree of normalcy of days old, at least when foreign policy wasn't quite so partisan. And we're seeing it now, in the, but except it was in the, in, the, in the olden days, back in the 90s. <laughs> but even all the way back throughout American history, you'd see unity in foreign policy among people who wouldn't agree on anything domestically because the best interests of the United States could generally be agreed upon. We all wanted to secure resources. We wanted to promote democracy. We wanted to avoid entanglements with dictators as much as possible. But when required... We all sort of shrugged our shoulders. And so a foreign policy would sort of sometimes bring rationality to the political debate when when so often Republicans and Democrats would would come together. Uh, the odd thing here, we're seeing it here because we're seeing it in Chuck Hagel and Carl Levin, guys who don't agree on anything, speaking exactly the same language on Iraq to say nothing of so much to say nothing of John Warner and John Kerry for, for crying out loud. But we're also seeing it 
from Joe Lieberman and uh, and some other uh, conservative Democrats and guys like Larry Haas, who are now sort of it has nothing to do with party. There are simply crazy people adhering to a neocon philosophy of how the United States should conduct their business and and then rational people across the political spectrum. Thankfully, it is when when knowing that there are people like Chuck Hagel and John Warner who are applying some degree of rationality to this debate, uh, it actually makes me feel better. Uh, uh, about things heading in the in, in, in a more likely to head in the right direction. It's a it's a good card for for normal people to play. Uh, by the way, Larry called in during the break and he said he, this. I asked him, so what do you think is your idea of diplomacy? And he said this: You take a guy out with a bat before he gets you with a bat. I said, Oh, okay. I, that was actually Bo Deedle from the Iowa Show. No, uh, look, Larry is uh, of course a hundred percent wrong on this. And uh, one of the things Ben and I were talking about during the break is. He said, now in the hindsight, the Iran and other – by the way, they're all lumped together. Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda and Iran are mortal enemies, right? right? Now, and terrorists and state-sponsored terrorists, they all morph into these uh, ugly you know, Arab-slash-Persian dark people. We're fighting Muslims. Muslims, fear the Muslims! Brandon, I, I know Larry's not saying that, okay? He's not going that far, to be fair. But what he did say was – Almost as stupid, which is, no, back in the old days, all those, the Nazis, no big deal. The Soviet Union, no big deal. They were all rational actors. See, we could deal with them because it was all fine. Now, Iran, that's not a rational actor. Now we got to press the button. We can't. We're all, wow. And Ben and I were talking, you know what Stalin, the rational actor, did? (laughs) He killed 25 million people. Yeah. If that dude's rational... Okay, then we got a lot of questions as to what the word they, rational means. They thought communist. They wanted to destroy. You know, he lied about Ahmadinejad, who does not say that we're going to destroy the United States. He envisions a world where the United States is not a superpower. Talks about that. The end of the United States influence in the Middle East. He has never threatened the United States. He would never threaten the United States. It would be the most foolish thing he could do. So Larry simply just flat out uh, lied about that. Is deliberately misinterpreting it. The 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 Soviets thought communism would work. Everywhere they wanted to, they wanted to destroy us. I mean, global domination. What, Iran, Iran is going to dominate the globe. No, the Soviet Union was bent on global domination. And we talked to them again and again and again and again and again, and it took forever. And this notion of talking that somehow means this sort of this peddling, as I mentioned earlier in the show, this peddling of this notion that talk that talking is weak. I mean, it might not get anywhere. But for the love of God, we should try. And talking does not mean. First of all, he said uh, there's notion that the Ahmadinejad and Bush have to sit down. I don't want Bush in the room for crying out loud. Yeah, and it has nothing it to do with it. I don't care what level it goes on. It just needs to go on on some level so that we're feeling each other out. We can talk through an intermediary for crying out loud. But the notion that we shouldn't talk and that somehow that means that they try to portray it as if, and you hear it repeated on Fox and the talk radio shows. As if when we say talk to Iran and Syria, that means that we go and say, what do we have to do so you will stop scaring us? Please stop yelling at us and we'll give you whatever you want. That's preposterous. Look, uh, point of emphasis here. Uh, When you know when you go to uh, talk and deal with people, how are you going to do it? And and what results is it going to get you? And what are the alternatives? So real quick. What are the alternatives is a really good question. We kept trying to bore in on that with Larry, and he, and he kept talking about nebulous tightening the screws, economic sanctions, then leading into more and more uh, you know, 
sanctions. Restrictions on travel. Right, exactly. And then eventually, once you get through all that, what are you going to get to? Of course, the neocons all say Milit- preemptive strikes. Right, military action. Military action, okay? And the reality is that's nuts. That's super nuts. Now, what you can do instead – now, l- let's talk about what we agree on. Iran is not a happy-go-friendly country. And when you're listening to this sh- show, don't – I don't want anybody to make the mistake of thinking, you know, oh, yeah, we think Iran's no big deal or we think Iran's on our side or Iran's going to help us out. That's crazy. Of course not. The question is how do you deal with an enemy? And the way you deal with an enemy is we have the better system. And you let time work in our favor and uh, as we did with the Soviet Union – you you work them down. You work them down. You, you talk to them. You figure out how to limit them, how to restrain them, how to con- uh, how to control them, how to contain them, and then you let uh, freedom do its work. And you, and you instead of saying, "Hey, let's do regime change. We're going to kill you. We're going to take you down. We're going to take out your government and do those kind of threats." That's only that. The only thing that's going to do with Iran is alienate them and make them into a harder enemy. Instead, what you could do is what we did with China and what we did with Vietnam after we lost in Vietnam. Executing homosexuals, because China doesn't execute anybody. Oh, yeah, yeah. of course. And they, China executes more people than anybody else, but we do trade with them. And I Most think, favored nation status. Right. And so, and I think doing trade with China is the right thing. I think doing trade with Iran is the right thing. What you do is you engage them and you let time work in our favor. We've done it over and over. We know what works. We, the America became the greatest country on earth, not by accident, not because we didn't know what we were doing, because we did things that worked. We did the Marshall Plan that worked. We did containment that worked. What doesn't work is going into other people's countries and thinking that if you bomb them, they're going to come on your side. Uh, it didn't work in Vietnam. It hasn't worked in Iraq, and it wouldn't work in Iran. In fact, it would be even more disastrous well, Let's talk in about Iran. that for a second. I have three points to make here. Um, uh, one of them is excellent. One of them is ridiculous. And one of them is... Um, I look forward to all three. Um, We'll start with the one that's undeniable, and it's one that you just made. Um, but let's I mean, but let's not brush over it. The, he he keeps talking. Reach out to the people of Iran. I don't know how we do that. We'd sell them more stuff. I mean, that's how to. That's yeah, the best you way know to, how we. You know how uh, you do that. You talk to the Iran and you say, "Look, I'll make a deal with you. Okay, you give me X, Y, and Z, and I'll give you A and B begrudgingly. Okay, and I know the neocons never want to make any deals because diplomacy is kaka. They wouldn't have made any deals with the Soviet Union. They would have invaded. They regret, we, none they, of us would be here. They regret it. Uh, okay, now, and in fact, they yelled at Reagan. Or this is historical. They yelled at Reagan for making deals with the Soviet Union. And, and now, who was right and who was wrong? Now, what you do is you make a deal with Iran, and parts of that deal is, and you absolutely insist on it, internet, satellite uh, dishes, phones, whatever kind of free trade we have with Iran, make it times 10. Because once you let freedom in there, they're not going to be able to take it out. As, as Larry pointed out, a majority of the population of Iran, this is an amazing stat, over 50% is under the age of 25. 35, you, isn't it? No, it's under 25. That's okay. what's amazing about it, okay? So you give them the internet, and you let them watch the, the beaver shots of, you know, Lindsay Lohan and Britney Spears and whoever else is doing it. Believe me, over time, they're coming to our side. They don't have a choice. Those horny 25-year-old boys and under, they're coming to us. If you let them, instead if you push them and you shove it in their face and you go, I'm going to bomb you, I'm going to bomb you, you're axis of evil, how do you think 
that they're going to react patriotically, right. as anybody would, as we would. They're well, going to rebel. They're going to hate us. As he just said, and he even admitted, Larry did, that the notion of that the Iranian people support the Bush administration now uh, after what's happened in Iraq and this notion that there's this war on Islam, it's ridiculous. Of course they don't. But he says they don't like the Bush administration, but they love America. That is a distinction that I would not be betting a ton of money on right now. Ultimately, of course it's correct. But right now that they're drawing that distinction, oh, I hate the Bush administration, but I like Kerry, and I like the rest of America. That's ridiculous. They think we're imperialists. Uh, and uh, it's understood. So this notion that if we attack them, the, the, what he says is we need to appeal to them. Ultimately, it's clearly headed. He was clearly headed down. If we'd had 15 more minutes, the same direction. They're all headed down, which if we'll bomb them, we'll bomb them a little. That's all we'll have to do. And the people will rise up. Because they're so disenfranchised with executing the gays. Yeah, yeah. So let me go back. Just like it happened in Iraq. Right? So again, he talks about executing the gays because, again, China, Soviet Union, these people were executing people right and left on a far greater scale than Iran. By the way, China, Iran, Saudi Arabia, United States, some of the countries that still have the death penalty, uh, which we should all enjoy. Um, the uh, uh, I find it interesting that he talks about uh, executing the uh, uh, gays in, uh, in 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 Iran, which is obviously a horrible thing that they do. Uh, the same day that the New York Times and by News, the way, I don't even believe it. The same, I'm sure they do. They're terrible people, but that's not. It doesn't matter as far as whether we talk to them. It's immaterial. It is unimportant in the big picture. And I'd be surprised if they did anything the Saudis don't do. Of course, no, of course not. Of course they don't. You're 100 percent right. Um, so that's what why it's immaterial. China does it. We know China does it. Uh, mm. So. Uh, and then the notion, though, the same day that the New York Times and Newsweek come out with stories about how Jose Padilla was treated. Jose Padilla. Jose Padilla. You say Padilla. I say Padilla. Let's call the whole thing off. He, I mean, this is a guy who, and, and you know, uh, the, the the manner in which he was treated is abominable. But we'll get into that at some point later in the show. The details are distressing beyond belief that have come out in some pretrial motions for his case. But the fact is... Easily, he could have said, we're talking about these are irrational people. This is a country where the leader of the country can just lock you in jail with no, without doing anything about it, without showing you a lawyer or anything, and lock you away for life. But that's here. That's in this country. So, I mean, when it comes to civil rights right now, look, we're better than Iran. Great. That's really something to be proud of, something I can't quite believe we even – a comparison that is not ridiculously far-fetched anymore. Again, no, you don't, no habeas corpus, no right to see a lawyer if the supreme leader of the country uh, deems it to be the case. And finally, Cenk talked about time, taking time to get freedom. It doesn't come overnight. Diplomacy takes time. George Bush very frustrated. Diplomacy things takes hard, he said. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It takes a long time. This is the stupid point. The Shawshank Redemption just to, couldn't be a better one. Yeah. Just, just great, great, great movie. For 20 years with that rock axe. <laughs> and what happened at the end of that, though? After 20 years? Freedom. Freedom. Oh. Welcome to chapter two of this episode of the Best of the Left podcast. I just wanted to take this moment to ask that even if you usually don't, please do me a personal favor and listen to my comments at the end of today's show. Thanks. It's out of the New York Times. It's in the New York Times, in fact, in today's paper, as far as I can see. Uh, for evangelicals, supporting Israel is God's foreign policy. Yeah, that's they, a quote. 
They talked to leaders of the evangelical movement. Oh, you know what's curious? They didn't this talk- is also only in Missouri. <laughs> no, this is nationwide. What's curious is they didn't talk to Ted Haggard. Yeah. I wonder why. I wonder what he thinks of Israel. Could you? Oh, no, that's right. I'm, it's terrestrial radio. I'm going to let it go. I had three different things there, but I'm going to let it go, um, which is what Ted Haggard should have done with. All right. Anyway, uh, John Hagee uh, is Hagee, Hagee of San Antonio is one of the uh, probably Hagee is one of the evangelical leaders in this country, one of the top evangelical leaders in this country. He's one of the ones that go and talk to the White House on a regular basis. He has a new organization. It is called Christians United for Israel. And, uh, of course, they're not actually for Israel. They're for the ultimate destruction of Israel. Yeah. But, you know, it's in a roundabout way. First, what happens is they support Israel's rights so that Israel can build the second temple and Jesus Christ can come back. And there could be Armageddon and nearly everyone on the planet dies and Israel is destroyed. But then we get salvation. Right. But it's not just, I mean, you can't leave out the part. I mean, yes, Israel is destroyed and nearly everybody on the planet dies. But the Jews are all dead. I mean, it's very specific. I know. Doesn't Israel recognize this, that their alliance with the Christian right, this basically the... their alliance with the administration, is actually secretly... Yes. Right. They do, Doom for Israel? They do understand it, and it is both why uh, I like uh, 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 Jews in Israel mm-hmm. and simultaneously uh, why you're, I'm repelled by them. Uh, on, on, you like, you're repelled by them because how do you ally with these people? Right. I mean, it's just it's crazy talk. And they're bent on they're excited for your ultimate doom. You like them because they're because they recognize. Right. It's not going to freaking happen. We don't care. We know they're wrong. So I've seen interviews with some of the Israeli leaders and they're like they're entitled to their opinion. But yeah. for the moment being, they're very helpful. Yeah. I mean, so, and of course, there's no worry. It's not like, you know, they, they, they think they're kooky. Who it, knows? It, it, I mean, God, I mean, what if the Christians are right? <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Shouldn't we be taking some sort of precaution to prevent that? I, I, I mean, want... what if they're right? What if Armageddon does happen? Who's having the last laugh then? Yeah, well, you know... look, you know, all you people listening who are, you know, d- devoted to believe in the literal word of the Bible that Armageddon's going to happen, everybody's it's going to be a bloodbath, and only you, because you're so freaking holy, is going to get saved. By the way, I think... look, you will, if you are right, I guarantee you, you will get the last laugh, and I'll see, I'll come to you. Yeah. And as I'm being ripped apart by satanic forces, I will say you were right. Yeah, I will say sorry. You you nailed that one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's, real quick, let's read that paragraph from the New York Times. It's not just us saying this. Many conservative Christians say they believe that the president's support for Israel fulfills a biblical injunction to protect the Jewish state, which some of them think will play a pivotal role in the second coming. Many on the left, in turn, fear that such theology may influence decisions the administration makes toward Israel and the Middle East. I hate that paragraph because the people on the left should fear that theology may influence the decisions the administration makes. The conservative Christians who believe it are wacko. They're not, that's not equal. Oh, some on the left say that's a dangerous philosophy. And some on the right think Armageddon's a great idea. Well, you be the judge. Yeah, it's nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts.
if God is omniscient and omnipotent, you can't help wondering why she doesn't pull out a thunderbolt and strike down Richard Dawkins, or at least crash the website of www.whydoesgodhateamputees.com. That's a snarky site that notes that while people regularly credit God for curing cancer or other ailments, amputees never seem to enjoy divine intervention. If God were answering the prayers of amputees to regenerate their lost limbs, we would be seeing amputated legs growing back every day, the website declares, adding, it would appear to an unbiased observer that God is singling out amputees and purposefully ignoring them. That site is part of an increasingly assertive, often obnoxious atheist offensive led in part by Professor Dawkins, the Oxford scientist who's author of the new bestseller, The God Delusion. It's a militant, in-your-face brand of atheism that he and others are proselytizing for. He counsels readers to imagine a world without religion and conjures his own glimpse. Imagine no suicide bombers, no 9-11, no 7-7, no crusades, no witch hunts, no gunpowder plot, no Indian partition, no Israeli-Palestinian wars, no Serb-Croat-Muslim massacres, no persecution of Jews as Christ-killers, no Northern Ireland troubles, no honor killings, no shiny-suited, bouffant-haired televangelists fleecing gullible people of their money. Look elsewhere on the bestseller list and you find an equally acerbic assault on faith. Sam Harris's Letter to a Christian Nation. Mr. Harris mocks conservative Christians for opposing abortion, writing, 20% of all recognized pregnancies end in miscarriage. There is an obvious truth here that cries out for acknowledgement. If God exists, he's the most prolific abortionist of all. The number of avowed atheists is tiny, with only 1-2% to of Americans describing themselves in polls as atheists. But about 15% now say they are not affiliated with any religion. And this vague category is sometimes described as the fast-growing religious group in America today. Some surveys back that contention while others don't. Granted, many Americans may not yet be willing to come out of the closet and acknowledge their irreligious views. In polls, more than 90% of Americans have said that they would be willing to vote for a woman, a Jew, or a black. And 79% would be willing to vote for a gay person. But at last count, only 37% would consider voting for an atheist. Such discrimination on the basis of non-belief is insidious and intolerant, and undermines our ability to have far-reaching discussions about faith and politics. Mr. Harris, for example, makes some legitimate policy points, such as criticism of conservative Christians who try to block research on stem cells because of their potential to become humans. Almost every cell in your body is a potential human being, given our recent advances in genetic engineering, notes Mr. Harris. Every time you scratch your nose, you've committed a holocaust of potential human beings. Yet the tone of this charge of the atheist brigade is often just as intolerant and mean. It's contemptuous and even a bit fundamentalist. These writers share a few things with the zealous religionists they oppose such as a high degree of dogmatism and an aggressive rhetorical style, says John Green of the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. 
Indeed, one could speak of a secular fundamentalism that resembles religious fundamentalism. This may be one of those cases where opposites converge. Granted, religious figures have been involved throughout history in the worst kinds of atrocities. But as Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, and Pol Pot show, so have atheists. Moreover, for all the slaughters in the name of religion over the centuries, there is another side of the ledger. Every time I travel in the poorest parts of Africa, I see missionary hospitals that are the only source of assistance to desperate people. God may not help amputees sprout new limbs, but churches do galvanize their members to support soup kitchens, homeless shelters, and clinics that otherwise would not exist. Religious constituencies have pushed for more action on AIDS, malaria, sex trafficking, and Darfur's genocide, and believers often give large proportions of their incomes to charities that are a lifeline to the neediest. Now that the Christian right has largely retreated from the culture wars, let's hope that the atheist left doesn't revive them. We've suffered enough from religious intolerance that the last thing the world needs is irreligious intolerance. I may not always love you But long as there are stars above you Never need you doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. If you should ever leave me, the life would still go on. Believe me, the world will show nothing to me. So what good would Now, speaking of pushing, let's uh, push forward on this evangelical story. I knew there was a great quote we didn't get to, and I want to share that with you. Now, what's happening? What's that? Is it one of your quotes? No, it's not. It's actually a great quote by somebody else, believe it or not. And it's great because it's awful. Uh, What's happening is that evangelicals, the leading evangelicals in the country, except for Ted Haggard, who's busy trying to recover from uh, having sex with a gay prostitute. He's rooting through the trash looking for his meth. (laughs) Right, that he called, throw. I threw it away. That he so-called threw away. Okay, uh, Hagee is one of these guys, uh, Reverend John Hagee of San Antonio. The James Dobson, of course, is one of the leading guys. They've uh, created um, Christians United for Israel. And what they do, and we've talked about this on the show before, and the fact that the mainstream media wasn't covering it more is one of those stories that it was driving me crazy because it's as if, like, like, oh, no, ignore it. They're not really saying that. That's so crazy they can't really be saying that. Bob Simon, 60 Minutes, that did the sort of piece that got us uh, into it. Exactly. And and to be fair to the mainstream media, obviously we saw it on 60 Minutes, and that's part of the mainstream media. Now the New York Times is a big story on it today, and they spell it out. Bob Simon wasn't crazy. That was a real report. We weren't crazy. The things we read were true. These guys are crazy. What they want to do is they not want to. They are encouraging the White House to make sure that there is no peace between Israel and Palestine. And specifically during the Lebanon conflict, they went there to beseech the president that they not have a peace fire. I beseech you. That Jesus wanted more war. Jesus didn't want a ceasefire. 
So right. they went to the president and said, whatever you do, do not be even-handed. Don't restrain Israel against Hezbollah in any way, shape, or form. Uh, according to uh, Haji, he said, tell them to, quote, let Israel do their job by destroying the Lebanese militia and the civilians along with them. That's unfortunate, but hey, Israel's got to do their job. Well, one of uh, Jesus Christ's um, greatest teachings was... Pick up your sticks, throw your stones, war with your neighbor. Yeah. Uh, I must have missed that part in the Bible. But yes, that apparently, according to Hagee and Dobson, that is true. It was tucked right in there under or between love thy neighbor and help the poor. Yeah, Jesus was very, very big. It's you know, it, it, People don't quote this part of the Bible, and I, I find it staggering. There's a lot of talk in the Bible about collateral damage. <laughs> Jesus was huge on collateral damage. Don't judge him on his sandals. He was a very tough warrior. Yeah. And he said, before you turn the other cheek, make sure you obliterate the other side. Right. Uh, Heiji called the conflict, quote, a battle between good and evil and said support for Israel was, quote, God's foreign policy. God's foreign policy. So you can't argue with that because it's God's foreign policy. If God wants it, it's over. By the way, among the uh, advocates of this policy, it should be uh, noted for all you uh, Republican uh, supporters out there, was uh, Tom DeLay. Of course! You know who else listens to them every Monday is George Bush. Yep. They they actually have conversations with, with the uh, White House, and the White House takes them seriously. Why? Because they're, 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 they're their base. And these guys, their base is lunatics. Let me g- keep going here. Can I just, let me interrupt really fast. Uh, isn't foreign policy that something that is involved in the state, church and state, not supposed to be mixed, hence separated? But they, I didn't realize God was, was getting involved in state affairs. No, but the thing is, Jill, they don't believe that. Oh. And, and so they, st- and they literally, I've, I've seen quotes from Dobson, Tom DeLay, and others who say, the myth, uh, the ch- separation of church and state is a myth. That gosh darn constitution just keeps getting in their way. And Jill's also referring to the Bible where it says, of course, give Caesar onto Rick's, what? It- Rick Santorum, uh, Tom DeLay, they all thought it was a myth. Right. Now, so the Bible's wrong. The constitution's wrong. God really wants to. Uh, you know who's right? Taliban, Al-Qaeda, they say the church and state Absolutely. should be mixed. And so, and apparently, you know, they, they have all the fundamentalists, Christian or Muslim, have an agreement here. Their view of God, not God, not the Bible, but their view, their interpretation of their religious text should rule us all. So, now, I don't want you to get confused as to James Dobson's real motivations here and his real thoughts on Israel and the Jewish people. So I want to give you this great quote. Despite all, this is a quote from James Dobson. Despite all the spiritual shortcomings of the Jewish people, according to Scripture and those criticisms come not from Christians, but from the Old Testament, just look in Deuteronomy, where Jews are referred to as stiff-necked and stubborn people. Despite all of that, God has chosen to bless them as his people. God chose to bless Abraham and his seed, not because they were a perfect people any more than the rest of the human family. So, and he goes on to state, but what can we do? Although they have all these spiritual shortcomings, they are the chosen people. God says it. So we must support them right or wrong. We must support them no matter what. And why? Because the Bible says it, and the Bible says Jesus will come back after we do that and suck all the good people up into the sky and leave all the rest of you heathens and non-believers and Jews and, and, and Muslims and the rest of you to die a fiery death here. These people should not be appeased. They are not a legitimate voice in America. They, they want to speak? Great. 
Of course you let them speak. That's why we have the First Amendment. But they should be speaking in a lunatic asylum. I was okay? baptized. They are nuts. I was baptized. Do you think I'm okay? No, you will fire. Fiery death is what comes to you. But I'm a Christian because I was baptized. Uh, no, you have to be Christ. saved. You have to be saved specifically by these charlatans, you these are, hucksters. You are. Uh, you are so not saved. By the way, this was all done. All these nonsense things that are actually downright anti-Semitic. Much of what he says, uh, it was on a night to honor Israel. <laughs> yeah, isn't that a great irony? Yeah. And by the way, why did God forget about the Chinese? Yeah, why does God? Why did, why did he forget about the Mongolians and the Indians? Why did God only care about these stiff-necked and stubborn people, the Jewish people, and made him his chosen people? If you think the Jews are the chosen people, and the Chinese and the Russians and the uh, and the Hindus are not the chosen people, you are a lunatic. You are nuts. I'm I'm talking to you. I don't care if you think that. I don't care if you're a liberal. I don't care if you're a Republican, Democrat. You are insane. That's very anti-Semitic of you to say. Look, I am. I, I'm Jewish, so I, I, once again, I have to say this. I think that if God, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. If God were going to make a choice, that He would seriously choose people who are better athletes. Where do we go? Nobody knows. I've got to say I'm on my way down. God, give me style and give me grace. God, put a smile upon my face. The latest Christian blockbuster movie, Nativity Story, has been released in America, where it is being marketed through churches. It's the latest example of the booming market in products that are aimed specifically at Christians. It's a market worth nearly $10 billion a year. And now even the churches themselves are getting in on the act. A growing number are getting involved in everything from sports centres to shopping malls. James Westhead reports. together, would you, and begin our worship this morning? Well, the dynamic service here at Prestonwood Baptist Church in Dallas is pretty much what you'd expect in a city known as the buckle of the Bible Belt. But as you step out through the huge doors into its cavernous atrium thronging with people, you'd be forgiven for thinking you are in another sort of temple to consumerism. Did you find everything you were looking for? Yes, thank you. I'm real excited to get the CD. It's an excellent CD. You'll be very happy with it. Thanks. It looks more like a shopping mall than a church with a food court, restaurants, a Starbucks cafe and shops selling everything from home decorations to CDs. Your total is going to be 1572. Thank you. Here, stocking up for Christmas is Monica Weisel, her husband Kevin and their two young sons. It's so convenient, they tell me, they spend almost the whole week here. What the church has to offer underneath this roof is outside these walls. And we can go to another store, we can go eat lunch anywhere, but this is a safe place where I know the kids can meet other Christian kids. And it's nice to have a one-stop shop. And it's not only shopping. The church has some of the best sporting facilities in town. With 26,000 members, it's not just a mega church, it's a mega business. But its executive pastor, Mike Buster, tells me he sees no conflict. Uh, God is supreme over our finances, over our, our businesses, over our daily activities. And we believe we can honor God. Uh, any monies that we receive, we spend for ministry and missions. 
we believe that God's called us to be church of the 21st century. Blessed art thou, the Lord our God, King of the universe. Just across town, members of the Christian Trinity Foundation pray before dinner. They're a small group projecting what they see as the growing commercialization of churches. Its founder, Ole Anthony, has taken a vow of poverty to care for the homeless and feels mega churches are isolated from real communities. From my perspective, I'm happy that people are going to church and have accepted Christ, but I'm conflicted because of not seeing the call to discipleship and instead seeing this commercialization of Christianity and the Walmarting of Christianity. Gospel singer Patti LaBelle is currently touring American megachurches paid for by the car company Chrysler. In return, Chrysler had to sell their cars to parishioners outside the church door. The leading expert on megachurches, Professor Scott Thummer at the Hartford Seminary, predicts more such crossovers between faith and business. One of the things that the megachurches uh, attempt to do is to try to blur the distinction between what's sacred and what's secular. Oftentimes you'll see in these services and in the sermons the bringing in of clips from movies or television ads or products even that people use every day as a way to say that Christianity has a lot to say about everyday life and the reality of everyday life. Branching out into the everyday secular world has certainly worked for Prestonwood. It's planning to double in size in the next two years. While some fear commerce will lead Christianity astray, in America's consumer society, faith may be the most powerful brand of all. James Westhead for The World Today. So it's not just Christian fundamentalists in this country uh, that are wacky. Uh, well, certainly there's Muslim fundamentalists all over the world that are quite wacky. But, you know, actually I read that Noah Feldman piece I've talked about a couple of times in the New York Times Magazine from a couple of weeks ago. Interesting. It, it turns out it's actually not Muslim fundamentalists that are the problems. Uh, the Muslim fundamentalists don't believe in suicide bombings, etc. It's the new Muslim radicals, which are different. Uh, for thousands of years, the uh, the... The fundamental uh, teaching of the of the Quran was surprisingly enough no suicide but suicide was very very forbidden and killing women and children was incredibly forbidden it got actually changed when uh, recently when people said well women are in the Israeli army so we should be allowed to bomb them and then Osama bin Laden even more recently made the argument hey you know what all Americans vote and they were part of their government so that we should uh, be able to bomb all of them. I actually try to use the phrase, because uh, violent, uh, yeah, radical fundamentalists, you know, because right. that's, that's the operative word. There are plenty of fundamentalists who would never dream of doing anything violent. They mm -hmm. might even hate the United States, but we shouldn't even care about them. 
I mean, in, in the picture of in the, when it comes to defending ourselves. You can get in the streets, protest all you want, hate America all you want. I don't. If you're not gonna, if you're not gonna be violent, then God bless you. I, I go, go forward, have your opinion. The only people we should be care about are the people who are prepared. This may seem like an obvious point, but I think it's one that's that's often forgotten. Right now, but in this case, it's Christian fundamentalists in Kenya who are saying uh, that w- one of the best uh, museums in the world on pre-human fossils, uh, helped and run by the Leakeys, actually, a uh, very famous, obviously, anthro- uh, family in anthropology, um, and. Uh, that they should take down the the exhibit and they should change it because <laughs> it shows how we actually got here. We can't have that. Can't have that. We know how we no, got here. No, if they want to have a real museum on how we got here, they should just put up a couple of pictures of Genesis. You know, Adam and taking the rib and making a woman and God, and we're done. What's with all this fossils you found? That's those are facts. We're not interested in facts. And the of course Leaky, who's running it, is like. Are, are, are you guys nuts? And yeah, I, yeah, the, yes. And he says, well, "We, this should Kenya should be incredibly proud of this. This is one of the best museums in the world, and it's in Kenya, and it should be an enormous tourist attraction. And this is where hum, humanity began. The Homo sapiens began here in Africa, and and we're showing you how. And uh, you could, there's nothing you should be more proud of. And to come in here and say, uh, don't give me the facts. You see, I got a book here that somebody wrote two thousand years ago." And that tells me that, that, no, actually, it was from the rib and the dirt and all that stuff. And all of your interesting sciences is, is, should be put in the basement. And they're saying, get rid of the exhibit altogether. This is the stuff that drives me absolutely nuts. See, if you're religious and you, know, and you don't take the Bible or the Quran or whatever else, literally, and you just want to help people and you're interested in helping the poor and everybody else, God bless you. Okay, But if you're going to take it literally and you're going to come to me and tell me, no, 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 put away your science, your facts, etc., and uh, and actually, you know, go against books, go against scientific uh, researches, go go against the museums. Then we're going to have a fight on our hands because there's no way in the world we should take these fossils down, or the Kenyan government should take them down. And unfortunately, now the museum is considering it because they say, "Look, it's complicated. We got a lot of different constituencies. We don't want to piss anybody off." And I say, in the when you stand up for the facts, it's okay to piss people off. You shouldn't do it gratuitously. But if you're saying, "Hey, this is," a, what the fossils actually are. Stand your ground. There's nothing wrong with standing your ground. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks for your patience and remaining subscribed to the show during this extended period of inactivity. Um, First of all, let me just say, the most important thing I'm going to say today is to visit the website. Uh, I often forget to mention it, and it's because it doesn't change very often and it doesn't occur to me all the time, but today, for sure, definitely visit the website. Secondly, because uh, the website contains very important information that I'll be talking about here as well. Uh, Secondly, let me just uh, bring you up to speed if you happen to miss the end of the last show. I uh, talked a little bit about things that are pertinent still today. Um, A few weeks ago, I quit my job, uh, the one that I've had for a couple of years and hated nearly every minute of it. I was a FedEx driver for quite a while. That's, uh, you know, back in the early days, that's how I listen to, you know, nine hours of political podcasts a day and gave me the idea to collect all the great clips and put it in together 
um, put everything together into this show. And, uh, you know, so there, there's something good to be said about that job. But for the, for the most part, I, uh, I hated it. And so about six months into that job, I decided I wanted to quit. And a year and a half later, it actually happened. So during the last show, I talked about how I'd quit, uh, asked the audience for money just to help support the show while I have no income. And I just want to say thanks again to those of you who came through it. I mean, it really made a difference. Um, it just so happens I'm coming up on you know, time to renew my website subscription and things like that. So, so the extra money really did uh, come in uh, very handy at, at a very good time. So, so thanks again to everyone who donated. And uh, so after announcing that I was quitting my job, some very astute listeners were able to deduce what is going on. And they did so just by digging a little bit in my website. I'd written some articles last January, right before I started the podcast. I thought I was going to start a blog, and then, of course, I started the podcast, and the blog completely fell by the wayside. But um, but they were uh, very astutely able to deduce that I am getting ready to move to the East Coast. And this is something that I've wanted to do for about a year and a half, ever since I decided to quit FedEx. Uh, my idea was to quit FedEx and move to the East Coast. So that's the plan right now. And so over the last three weeks, basically what I've done is uh, I've said goodbye to everybody I knew in uh, Sacramento and on the West Coast. I have packed all of my worldly belongings into my car, driven to Louisiana, where my parents live, and I've been spending the holidays here with them. That's where I am sitting at this very moment. Uh, shortly after the New Year's, I will be driving up to Nashville, Tennessee, where my brother lives. And from there, it's a little bit up in the air for the moment. So this is where you might say that the plan starts to fall apart a bit. But then again, you may not, because you see, the plan from here on out, is to not have a plan. Let me just explain kind of how this all came about. Had my job that I hated, started about two years ago, and about 18 months ago, I decided to quit, move to the East Coast, maybe Washington, and get involved with politics. Then about 11 months ago, I decided, uh, in order to maintain my sanity, I would start this podcast. Then, about 10 months ago, I had an idea that I thought may be very useful to me in making my move, and that was to ask for help. You know, it's a pretty simple idea, but, you know, when you're trying something new or, you know, trying to take on something much larger than yourself, ask for help. It makes all the sense in the world. And that is where you come in. Because, you see, I don't know anyone on the East Coast I don't know anyone involved in politics, and I essentially have no connection whatsoever that can help me. I have no one to ask for help. And so, as I said about 10 months ago when I decided to ask for help, I was thinking about you. So the time has finally come, and this is me shamelessly asking you, my fine listeners, 
for help at a time, I'm sure, more than any other in my life uh, that I need help. So if you or anyone you know lives on the East Coast or has contacts on the East Coast and can help me get started on the right foot in terms of a job, an internship, uh, an apartment to rent, uh, if you have uh, references you can send my way, people to meet, contacts to call, places to go, uh, just some advice you want to pass on, if you want to grab a lunch and show me around your city, or if you just know uh, a hot girl who you think you should set me up with, I'm excited to hear from you, because I really I have no uh, no concrete place to start, and uh, and so my my future is wide open, and that's exactly how I want it. And um, in all seriousness, the help that I may or may not get from my audience or any other place I look for it uh, will very likely determine where I end up, and uh, and it could be instrumental in determining in what direction my life goes from here on out in this the easily the biggest change my life has ever gone through will be determined by what comes along and uh, and frankly I'm ecstatic I'm excited about about the prospects and so thank you for listening thank you for all the support uh, that any and all of you have given in the past, and uh, I hope to hear from all of you soon. Go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com for all the information you need, or email direct at hippiesympathizer at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>